This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, it says this. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning, uh, for the opportunity to come and gather as a unified people that have been um, found and saved by you. We're able to lift you high uh, and, and claim that. We pray that the truth of these verses that we read today uh, just be just land on our hearts of what it means to uh, present and proclaim you and to be willing to do so to everyone, to all people, to labor and to, to give from an energy that's actually um, bigger than us. That's one that you give us to be able to walk that out obediently in the world. Pray that your Holy Spirit just um, preach a second sermon that finds us where we are, meets us where we are, and powers, equips, and moves us. Uh, to obey and follow and just be invited into what it looks like to journey in your presence. Uh, Lord, we, we love you and we thank you. Um, we just think grateful for our time with you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Uh, sometimes, <clears throat> since Joel mentioned earlier, I'm a little just disclaimer. I have a bottle of water here. I haven't been here a couple weeks. Um, I actually came down with COVID after a little bit after Easter and was out of pocket for a couple weeks. Um, you know, back better than ever. Kind of, except for a lingering cough that my doctor said was normal and no longer me spreading the virus, okay? So, like, just FYI, I might have a, a need for some water through the service, which is why it's up here. Um, but thanks for your prayers and your encouragements and just for, for your well wishes for me during that time. And um, things, uh, it stinks. It's no fun, you know? It complicates a lot of things, so I'm glad to, glad to be through it. Joel mentioned earlier when we, when we let off our time of worship today, he mentioned that like sometimes we can just be set in a routine and in a rhythm. And I want to speak to why we stand up on Sunday mornings, because that can be one of those things. It's like routine and rhythmic. It's just like, that's what you do at church when you read the Bible. Okay. A couple reasons. One, it's found in the book of Ezra, that the people of God stand in adherence to his word. But secondly, um, and for those of you that might understand this cultural reference, I'm a big fan of the show, The West Wing. I don't know if any of you guys like The West Wing or not. It's great probably my favorite show of all time. But you get to kind of watch the life of the President of the United States. And you know what happens every time the President of the United States enters the room? Everybody stands up. We have something that's more impressive than the President of the United States. I don't care who it is. We have the Word of God. And we get to celebrate and exalt the Son of God, who is the living Word of God. And so we stand, not because it's the ritualistic, rhythmic thing to do on Sundays right before a sermon, we stand because we honor the presence and the word of the living God. So I just wanted to give you that. And what Trey was talking about with what we get to do next week in commissioning our students or young people that might be here, there, everywhere over the summer, like that's one of the fav my favorite things that we get to do at this church is commission people in everyday life um, because everyday life is, is life on mission. And we get to send people out. Uh, I actually like it when we send out a missionary, like someone that's literally going to work in the mission field or in the ministry field, 
right next to someone that's like going to be an engineer because both of those things are working in the mission field, in the, in the ministry. And we're going to talk about it today. We're actually going to get to commission someone at the end of our service today. And I just get hyped about that. And so um, next week, that's one of the reasons we want your number um, is because we want you to text our number. We gave, we gave you ours, actually. It's what we care about more. We want you to text us if you're being somewhere this summer is so that we can just, just very practically and very intentionally commission you. Uh, we get that kind of concept from commissioning, some of which we get to talk about today. So we're going to get right in to our text. Trey led us in that. And we're going to kind of unpack, I'm just going to give you the framework of how we're going to do today. We're going to unpack verses really 28 and 29, might go back a little bit to verse 25 for just a moment. And then we're going to kind of lean into some specific areas that we feel like this highlights. And so if you will, if you have your Bibles open, you can look back. We're actually going to start in verse 25, which Kurt preached a few weeks ago, only so that we can kind of set up 28 and 29. Paul writes, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to you to make the word of God fully known, of which I became a minister. Now, at first glance, you might think that Paul is talking about um, that this verse for him and this verse for everybody else, it only applies to pastors, only applies to people that work at churches. When he says minister, it's really, I'm not saying it's a bad translation. Uh, we just have, a, we just have like a, a bad cultural reference of the word minister. We usually put it in an official role. It's really just the word servant as well. And so Paul says that I became a servant of Christ in this capacity, that I would steward what God has given to me to make the word of God fully known. Guess what? That commissioning to be a servant of Christ that makes God's word fully known doesn't belong to pastors. It belongs to all Christ followers. It belongs to you just as much as it belongs to me. And in fact, when he talks about making the word of God fully known, it actually has a double meaning. Now, I don't expect many of us have the Greek New Testament out in front of us today. Some of us might be, you know, rolling intellectually deep with our apps open with our Greek interlinear Bibles or something. But the word this is going to sound confusing. The Greek word for the word word, you with me? The Greek translation of the word word is the Greek word logos. We've seen that somewhere in scripture before. It's in John chapter one, it says, in the beginning was the logos, the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. And he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. So what Paul's saying here, and this is kind of our connection point to 128, which we're starting today, uh, which we're preaching today. What he's saying here is he, he exists to steward, to make the word of God fully known. He means Jesus. That's what he means. And how do I know that he means Jesus? Yes, he means the scripture too, but the Bible didn't exist yet when Paul said this. We just need some reference point there. Um, or it didn't exist yet, at least in the New Testament didn't, because he was, you know, writing it. Um, but he means Jesus. And the reason I know that is because in verse 28, it says this. What is it, what is, how does 28 lead off? Who do we proclaim? Him. Him. Jesus, we proclaim. We proclaim him. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Friends. We do not proclaim a religious system or a formula. We proclaim a person, a savior, Jesus himself. The world doesn't need like our religious structure of Christianity. The world needs Jesus. And that's what we are pointing to when we read this text. When Paul shares with us this text, the Holy Spirit through his hand says, it's Christ we proclaim. He is what the world needs. There's a famous painting in Paris, France, housed at the Louvre um, called the Mona Lisa. 
painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Many of you guys probably have heard of it. When I say the Mona Lisa, you can picture it in your mind. Kind of a pale, little homely gal with kind of a half smile, and it's worth millions of dollars, right? Like, I would probably get made fun of by some art critics for that kind of summarization, but you guys know what the Mona Lisa looks like, right? Did you know that the Mona Lisa has only left the Louvre twice in her history since she was first there, she was put there, since I guess the painting is not necessarily gendered, um, since it was placed there. And they, it had gone on a tour to Russia and to Tokyo, Japan, like 70-something years ago, and then it went on another tour, like I think close to 50 years ago, here in the United States, Washington, D.C., um, the National Archives, and then it was on display there, and then in New York City at the Metropolitan Museum of Art before it returned back to Paris to its home. Now, when the people, I don't know what all went into moving the Mona Lisa, but I'm sure it was extravagant. I'm sure no expense was spared. Um, I'm prob- the movers probably wore the equivalent of hazmat suits with gloves. They had security around them at all times. They had engineers determining how it could be transported and how it should you know, be travel in air and pressurized cabins and all these different things that could change this valuable, priceless piece of art that needed to be displayed so the world might know, right? Well, friends, you've been given something far more valuable, far more treasurable than a painting that sits in a museum in Paris, France. And when those movers took that painting, they don't have the liberty to Photoshop her and put a better smile on her face, to up the saturation of her skin tone so where she looks a little tan, you know, or to edit like we do all of our Instagram images. They don't have that option. They had to present her in her purity to the world as the Mona Lisa. And as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, he doesn't need your cultural exegesis or your cultural relevance. He doesn't need your cultural conversational application. We're to proclaim him in the exact same way that the movers of the Mona Lisa just presented a painting. We have something even more valuable that we get to present, steward, and display for the world to see. And that's what Paul reminds us here is that it's Christ, it's him that we must proclaim. Now I want to give a little shout out to our elders here at this church, um, to Kurt, to Butch, to Brian, to Steve, that all joined me and being an elder here. We don't treat our time together as doing ministry, right? Like when we talked earlier about Paul became a servant, like ministry is not our job as elders. Ministry belongs to the people of God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter four, it says that that the Holy Spirit makes some to be leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And what we try to do here at Commonwealth, what we try to do here in the life of this church is equip you to do the work of ministry, this very ministry that Paul's talking about. Proclaiming him doesn't belong just from 11 to 12.30 on a Sunday morning, or if you happen to come to our early service from 9 to 10.30. It doesn't just belong there. It doesn't just belong to the people that you podcast. It doesn't just belong to the people that you, you know, tune into on YouTube or whatever. Proclaiming Christ belongs to all followers of Jesus. I've not been entrusted the valuable painting. We have, right? And we've been entrusted something far more valuable than something that Leonardo da Vinci could ever come up with. So we're committed to equipping you to do and carry and proclaim the words and the works of ministry in everyday life. As we go on, we continue in verse 28. We see that Paul points out, um, him we proclaim, which we mentioned, 
warning, and then it says a word, everyone, teaching, everyone, with all wisdom that we might present, and there's another one, everyone mature in Christ. This is really important. When I was in UK, when I was a student, which is a bit ago at this point, I took a film art class here at the University of Kentucky. Now, when I signed up for it, I thought that I was going to be able to watch like Die Hard and Gladiator all the time. Turns out it's not what you get to watch in film art classes here at the University of Kentucky. Shout out, you know, College of Arts and Sciences. Um, You don't get to watch those. You get to watch like a lot of foreign films, sometimes silent movies, um, a lot of black and white. Quite frankly, it's quite boring. And I used to sit over here in the library and fall asleep in the little almost like holding cells they would make me watch the movies in. You know, you'd check them out watch the movies over there, but I did walk away with something. I learned one thing, and I learned the, that there's a, there's a framework of storytelling called classic Hollywood design. Classic Hollywood design is obviously birthed out of the Hollywood movement of film production over the last century, and, and basically it's the concept that in a classic Hollywood design movie, now we all like sometimes some weird movies or some exceptions to the rules, but in a classic Hollywood design movie, the storyteller, so the screenwriter and the director, will make sure you don't miss the point. And they will actually highlight the thing that you don't need to miss like three times. So for those of you that are Back to the Future fans, how fast does the car need to go to go into the future? Anybody? 88 miles an hour. You see that like 15 times throughout the movie because when you're coming down, spoiler alert, when they're coming down the end and he's wondering if he's going to get to go back to the future, you're wondering, is the speedometer going to get to 88? You know, like, because you know, this is really important detail in the movie. It's also in things like The Wizard of Oz with No Place Like Home. You see that all throughout the movie. And it's in The Godfather. If you're wondering where Michael's going to, um, you know, win one for his family, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. It tells you these things all throughout. It, it drops in these threads of vision throughout the movie that says, you don't want to miss this. Now, Hollywood did not predate the Apostle Paul writing Colossians chapter 1. But there's something that Paul draws our attention to here in 128. He mentions it three times. It's the exact same word. Everyone, everyone, everyone. There's an emphasis that every person get to know the truth of him that we proclaim. It's going to be where we really spend some time today. And then lastly, he says in verse 29, for this, that everyone might know, that everyone might be presented mature, that everyone might understand, that everyone might be taught and warned. For this, I labor or toil. I take a beating. I am absolutely exhaust myself. I struggle. The word there is literally the word that we get agonized from. Like there is an agony that goes into the effort to present everyone mature in Christ. And then Paul actually goes so far as to point out It's even bigger than my human effort can accomplish. I need the spirit and the power of God that works so powerfully within me so that I can convince and persuade everyone to to understand the truth of Jesus. Because Paul is convinced, he and the Holy Spirit speak also to us to convince us that Jesus is the person that everyone in the world needs. That's the prayer of our hearts. Commonwealth City Church, that we might be good stewards, just like the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, to present everyone with the truth that they need, which is Christ. So we look at this phrase in verse 29. This is a couple places we're going to lean in. That was a quick overview. We're going to lean in. The first one is presenting everyone mature in Christ. Now, when we think of the concept of mature in Christ, there's a lot of definitions here, a whole lot. 
Some people think that mature in Christ is having memorized a lot of the Bible. Some people think that mature in Christ is knowing all the hymns. Some people think, though some of you just learned, just heard the word hymn for the first time, and you know, you think it's, it's H-Y-M-N, hymn, okay? Like, um, you still don't know what that means. Google it later. Some of you guys, um, you know, being presented mature in Christ is giving a lot of money. Like, we have a lot of definitions. We've created a lot of scorecards over what it means to be mature in Christ. The reality is that we actually can do an easier job of probably pointing out Christian immaturity than we can pointing out Christian maturity. And there's one thing that we can be certain about. The American church lacks and has lacked historically a lot of maturity, a lot. We struggled to be on the right side of stuff with race and justice for like three centuries, four centuries. We've not been great at that. We struggled with sexual abuse in the church, not just recently, for a long time. We've struggled with places of of valuing and dignifying people. We've struggled being missional. We've struggled being um, accepting and taking the best news of people to the ends of the earth. We're still struggling in all of those areas as well. Now, it's easy to rip the Legos apart and deconstruct and leave a mess in the floor. Anybody can do that. The The harder part, and really the more redeeming part, is to see that God still desires to use something that's flawed, even tragically flawed, to be the vessel that he redeems and reconciles the whole world. That takes some pretty incredible faith. And so today we get to start to put those things back together a little bit, but we get to start by pointing out where we lack some maturity. Now, I don't just need to get on a soapbox of the huge cultural issues that the church historically has been on the wrong side of. I can get in present stats as well. 17% of churchgoers today, Christian churchgoers today, can tell you what the Great Commission is. That's less than two out of 10 if you're good at math. Less than two out of 10 people can even tell you what the Great Commission is, which by the way, if you're wondering what it is, it's in Matthew 28 and the very last little bit of of Matthew's gospel where Jesus gives kind of the famous last words of all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and preach the gospel to all people, baptizing and teaching them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, having them do what I've been doing with you and to do that to the ends of the earth. And I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the age. That's A summarization of the Great Commission. Some of you guys may have heard that before, but less than two out of 10 Christians can even tell you what it is. Close to 60% of Christians in America read the Bible individually less than three, one, two, three times in an entire year. Three out of five read the Bible for themselves less than three times the entire year. The average Christian millennial, now when we talk about millennial, my generation's like, oh, those are the young people. Well, no, actually, that's me. I'm a millennial. I am no longer the young people either. Um, And so I am a millennial. This is true of my generation, and it's even more true of Gen Z below me. The average Christian millennial consumes 3,000 hours of content each year, but only 150 of those hours are even remotely considered Christian. And I don't mean that's 150 hours of Bible reading. I'm talking we're throwing the chosen in that. We're throwing like podcast in that. We're throwing he reads truth and she reads truth on Instagram and that 150 hours out of 3,000 hours is what a Christian millennial consumes, 150 Christian hours consumes a year. That's around 5% of the content that they consume. I don't think those are good definitions of maturity. That less than two out of 10 can tell you what the Great Commission is, that we read the Bible, majority of us read the Bible less than three times a year, and that 5% of what we consume information and content-wise is even remotely considered Christian. In fact, there's a story that I've heard a lot recently. I've heard, it, I've heard it for a number of years, but I've heard it a lot recently. It's a story of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian and pastor 
during the rise of the Nazis um, in the 1930s and 40s in Germany. And he had a discipleship school, we would call a seminary, uh, at a place called Finkenwald. And um, he used to invite, fam- invite young men, invite those that he was discipling into this to, to um, instill within them um, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus to send them off into the world. And he was visited by a friend at one point, and they got on a river and were boating down the river. And as they boated down the river, they over to their right, a little bit down from the discipleship school, um, was a Nazi training center for the Nazi army. And there you saw hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers walking in perfect lines and doing their drills and doing their trainings and doing their exercises perfectly and with great fervor and with great passion and with great intensity. And the man that was with Mr. Bonhoeffer said, what is so important about having the discipleship school at Finkenwald? And he pointed at the Nazi army and he said, you see, if if what we're doing with schooling and training and, and releasing disciples in the world, if that is not stronger than what we see right here, then we're not joining the mission of Jesus in the world like we're supposed to. He actually said, if this, pointing to his disciples' school, this is not stronger than that, and he pointed at the German camp, then we're in a world of trouble. Well, that same sentiment exists today. It might not be us on a river looking at a German, um, you know, training center, but it's just looking at our culture. It's just looking at the needs that our world has, and it's saying if what we have in Christ is not stronger than all of these things, then like we're not doing our job in joining Jesus profoundly and responsibly and correctly in the world. So if we can easily unpack what maturity is not, what do we determine that maturity actually is? I've had to be careful with the scorecard. We don't want to undermine what we said earlier, that it's him we proclaim. We don't want to create religious systems and formulas um, to just kind of attend to and, and check the box. And as Kurt said a few weeks ago, compartmentalize. But as I've done study these last couple weeks, as I've talked to some friends um, and kind of uh, accumulated definitions of what maturity in Jesus looks like, I've, I've really arrived at this being my definition. So I'm not trying to act like this is the exact biblical definition of Christian maturity, but this is just my summarization for the sake of us this morning, and it's this. Christian maturity is being convinced of our transformed identity and committed to our obedience in Jesus. Convinced of our transformed identity and committed to our obedience in Jesus. Now, obedience in Jesus is a lot of things. It's both internalized obedience, it's ridding ourselves of stuff. In fact, in a few, well, it'll be few months at this point because we're going to do something different over the summer. But when we get to Colossians chapter 3, you'll see it broken down. As Colossians 3 talks about what to rid ourselves of, what to put to death that's within us in terms of sin, but then also what to put on in terms of compassionate hearts and kindness and love and forgiveness and, and meekness and gentleness. It, so there's both. Obedience is removing some things and it's also adding some things. Obedience is stop going some directions and start going other directions. And so obedient, committed to obedience, always is birthed out of our convincing, our being convinced of our own transformed identity. And then we ask this question, who needs to be mature? What does Paul say? Who needs to be mature? Everyone. Everyone. I want to pause for a moment of reflection with you guys. Like if you've had people in your life that have been committed to your maturity, why don't you make a note of who those people are and thank them? If you've had people in your life that have been committed to your Christian maturity, to you being convinced of your transformed identity and committed to obedience, just 
in the margins of your notes or on your phone or something, just make a note of those people and go out of your way to thank them for what it looks like for them to have joined the work of Jesus and you being there, everyone, at least to start, right? We'll get one closer to everyone because it happened to you. So the question we have to ask when we come through and recognize that we want to present everyone mature in Christ is we have to say, do we really want everyone? Now, the ultimate Christian answer is like, well, yeah, we want everyone. But if we're really looking at the church in America, do we want everyone? Have we wanted everyone to be mature in Christ? Do we want the messy? Do we want the hard? Do we want those that oppose us? Or do we want everybody that just kind of thinks like us, votes like us, acts like us, gives like us, spends money like us? Or do we really want everyone? Do we want those that are broken, that are difficult? It's a lot easier to suffer and sacrifice for people if they appreciate it in return, isn't it? But Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings, not just so that the people that appreciate it will give me a reward, but for everyone to be mature in Christ. He didn't limit that. Now, when you hear everyone, some of you might think of a family member or a friend. I really want them presented mature in Christ. I really want them to be taught and to be warned about where their life could head separate from Jesus. Some of you might hear everyone and think of an unreached people group on another part of the planet. Some of you might hear everyone and think of um, the children that are here in our, literally in our church building or in our worship every single week that are a part of our children's ministry. Some of you might hear everyone and think of the messiest places, the most broken places in our cities. Some of you might think of international students or just students in general. Some of you might think of specific communities or people like friends or neighbors or coworkers. Some of you might think of the people that literally showed up to attend this gathering. Those are some of the everyone that we're after. And here's the reality. Whether you think of your friends or your family, or you think of an unreached person that you have no idea how, who they are or, or what language they speak on another part of the world, all of you are right. All of you. Not one of those people needs to be neglected. And in fact, one of the things that Paul says in verse 28 that he proclaims and, and warns is that if we are to select, if we're to give the message of the gospel to only a select few, to only the easy ones, to only the ones who put forth an effort, then shame on us. That's not who we're supposed to be as the church. Kurt talked last two weeks ago about stewarding your ministry. He preached from verse 24 and 25. He talked about stewarding your ministry. He, he, he said, what are you called to steward? Meaning from, from an ability or a skill or a talent or responsibility standpoint. And then he said, who are you called to steward? And he encouraged you to make a list. I've done that myself. I've made a list of people that, that I feel like the Lord has called me to steward to make sure that they at least have my effort, which Christ so powerfully works within me, my effort to labor and toil so that they might be presented mature in Christ. So they might be warned. So they might be taught with all wisdom. I've done that as well, but I'm going to add to it. I, I hope, or I'm going to kick it up a notch. I hope that your list, you get to take some people off it because you're seeing transformation happen in their life, but I hope that you also add people to it. I hope that as you live life in this city, that your heart bursts with new things and new opportunities and new people to pray for and to labor and toil so that they might be presented in Christ. In fact, a little confession in the age of Zoom meetings that we're in, I just get so tired of being on, I know you guys do too, being on the virtual, you know, platforms and whatnot. And so if it's a meeting that I can kind of a little bit disengage from, but I need to like kind of be logged in, you know what I'm talking about? 
I will keep my video off, keep my microphone off, and I'll just drive around. It's not super economical with gas prices these days, but I'll just drive around. And I'll like end up in random parks and I'll like turn my camera on for a minute and be like, hey, how you guys doing? And then turn it back off, you know, or say some things on the mic just to be present. I'll, I'll end up in just random places in our city. But I feel like as I've done that, the Lord has opened even my heart to different places and spaces to pray for, to contend for, and to hope and expect that there are people that live there or that play there, if it's a park or recreate there, that they might be presented mature in Christ. In fact, where I live on the north side of town, I live around Castlewood Park. I regularly drive past 7th Street and Limestone. And if you're familiar with that part of town, it's probably the epicenter of sexual workers in our city. It's dark, hard, difficult place. And every time I drive by, every time, I without question see someone walking to or from an event that's extremely shameful and extremely difficult. And I don't know if God's asking me to like necessarily be the person that meets every need, but I know that 7th and Lime has been added to my list. I know Natalie's Sisters, which is a ministry that's right there on the corner of 7th and Lime to minister specifically to some of these um, people in prostitution. Um, they have a mural on the side of their building that says, you're welcome at our table. And uh, we get to partner with them as a church and a number of other churches in town that have partnered with Natalie's Sisters. Um, but I know that they belong on my list because I'm aware and I see it with my eyes and I observe and because I observe what's Paul saying that the Lord's asking me to do, present everyone, even the hard, even the broken, even the messy, present everyone mature in Christ. The confession here is that it's a lot easier to exhaust myself for the people that make it easy. I don't know if you all watched the movie Hitch before. It's a bit of an old movie, but um, Will Smith's character is telling Kevin James' character how to kiss a girl. And he says, you have to go 90% of the way and they come 10, Right. Like when it comes to our discipleship efforts, we love it when people walk 90% of the way. Hey, pick me. I want to be discipled. Hey, I want to be, I want to know Jesus better. Hey, I'm showing up at all the events. Hey, I'm showing up at all the Bible studies. Hey, I'm showing up at your house. We, those are easy. We love the people that agree with us already and that line up with what we line up with mentally and have the same perspective and have the same worldview and make it easy that walk toward us. Please disciple me. And listen, all those people need to be discipled. Some of those people are in this room literally right now. You deserve to be discipled uh, and made into the, conformed into the image of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is committed to do that. But what about the people that don't know what family is? What about the people that don't know how grace works? What about the people that actually oppose you? Run the other way when you show up. What about the people that don't know what we're supposed to care about or how we're supposed to, to you know, practice our lives in the world? What about the people whose lives are so filled with suffering right in front of them right now that their attention to it might make it really hard or really difficult? What about those people? Because the Bible would also say that they're to be presented mature in Christ too. In fact, I heard an analogy of a pastor not long ago and talked about his family, um, a bit of a large family, and, and their Thanksgiving setups were always um, a formal dining room table for the adults, and then the kids would eat at the kitchen table. And the formal dining room table had like stemmed glasses and china and really nice place settings and really nice tablecloth, and then the kitchen would have like the plastic plates or the paper plates, the plastic silverware, because you have an issue of um, maturity, much like what we're talking about today. But the mature can be in the dining room. They're not going to make a mess. The less mature, if you will, um, who are maybe a little more accident prone, still belong in the kitchen. And slowly but surely over the years, the children grew up. They learned their role at the big table. And they were able to take their place 
use the stemware correctly, not break the china, not make a mess, and everybody just, we just put some leaves into the big dining room table, and that was Thanksgiving. So are you tracking with me? Well, eventually, one of the family that had grown up and gotten married decided to adopt. And even though they had kids that were biological, that were older, they adopted a young child. There wasn't enough people to all sit into the kitchen, so they just brought the high chair and the young child into the family dining room formal play settings, right? And guess what? We had some broken stemware. We had some cracked china. We had some messes on the, on the wall and on the carpet and on the tablecloth. But we had a greater joy in the formal setting. And the pastor is a guy named Matt Chandler. He said, he said that my fear is that the church's idea of maturity is everybody learning their manners to sit at the formal table. But the kingdom of God says there better always be a place for an adopted child in a high chair at the table that Jesus provides. And we've got to be a church that always has room, not just if in case it happens, but out of expectation that we will be inviting people that don't know the rules and that don't know the right way to live. In fact, this was the problem with the disciples in the, in the New Testament. These were barbaric guys that didn't know their right hand from their left. And yet Jesus made a place for them to follow him and to practice his life in his way with them. The point of the kingdom is always a messy Thanksgiving. And so I hope that we have room at our tables. We ask those questions. What about those kind of people? What about the messes? What about those that don't know the family of God? Well, what about those that have never seen or heard? They haven't gotten there yet. There's 2.2 billion of them on the planet that have never seen or heard this Christ that we proclaim. J.D. Greer, he's a pastor in North Carolina. He said that he, he was reciting Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which is a verse many of you know. It's to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And Greer defines justice as using what God's given you for the purposes that he gave it to you for. He said it's actually an injustice, and he references about 200 places in the Old Testament. It is actually an injustice for those in positions of privilege or power or of influence to not use and leverage that privilege and power and influence for those that don't have it. In fact, the Bible would not define that as charitable. The Bible would find that, define that as justice. And we see Paul come alongside that in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, verse 14. He says, I am indebted or I am under obligation to both the Greeks and to the barbarians. And barbarians is not a very PC term, but what he means by that is to people that are very rude and harsh in their talk, in their mindsets, in their understanding. Paul says, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you, both the Greeks and the barbarians. I'm under obligation to do so scripturally because that's what God's asked me to steward, debted to these people. So we have to ask the question too, what are, who, what are we in obligation to do? Who are we indebted to for the sake of the gospel? American Christians, American Christians currently have an annual combined income of $5 trillion. American Christians, notice I didn't say have a combined net worth of $5 trillion. We have an annual combined income, meaning that what we get in paychecks in 2021 will actually probably be in excess of five, not billion, but trillion dollars. So we have to ask a question. How do we leverage that? If, we're, if we have those resources, how do we, in the sake of justice to the entire world for the cause of Christ, 
leverage those resources for his glory. I'm going to give you a list. I want you to calculate what you think this would cost in your head as I give it to you. This list is going to include quite a few things. First, what do you think it would cost for us to, this is total, not just line by line, sponsor 1 million indigenous missionaries, completely fund, number two, completely fund the fight against global malaria, to quadruple the missions budget of every mission agency committed to unreached people groups, to provide food, clothing, and shelter to 6.5 million refugees in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, to triple the global Bible translation production. So whatever we're currently producing, to triple it. To fund 150,000 complete seminary scholarships to students from emerging and underdeveloped economies. To double the operating budget of both Compassion International and World Vision. To establish eight new fully staffed, fully run Christian universities around the world and to hire 25,000 additional American missionaries to work on college campuses all across the country. What do you think it would cost to do all those things? It could be accomplished if the Christians in the United States gave just 0.4% of their annual income. One additional dollar out of every $250 they make. All that could be accomplished. So then we have to ask the question of, do we really labor and toil with all that is within us to see everyone presented mature in Christ? Because our words might say we do, but our actions aren't very loud about it. Now, I want to be clear. That's a bit of a gotcha list, okay? Um, there is no single organization that you can Venmo right now that's doing all those things collectively, okay? Like, there's not. Like, that's bits and pieces of tons of different orgs and tons of different things. So instead of me trying to pass a plate this morning and guilt you into giving some money towards that, I'm actually going to ask you something a little harder. How do you labor and toil and exhaust yourself and sacrifice yourself for the kingdom of God? How do you proclaim him? Who are the people that are right in front of you that God would say, I don't get everyone unless I get them? Who are the people that are right in front of you? The low-hanging fruit. I don't know if you've ever been to an orchard or not, but like the nice fruit at the top is hard to get. But the one that's like right here at eye level, that's easy. Pick that one off. Who are the people that are right in front of you? And I don't mean making people projects. I mean stewarding the relationships that the Holy Spirit has been faithful to provide right in front of your face. Neighbors, friends, coworkers, or have you overlooked them? Is grass greener on the other side of the fence? Because God's kingdom says it's not. Don't overlook those people. Who might you be overlooking that the Lord would say, stop, lean in, sacrifice for them. And then here's the key about sacrificing. What Paul is writing in Colossians 1, 24 through 29 says, sacrifice for them with no expectation that they ever pay anything back. Sacrifice for them actually with the expectation that they cost you more than you're willing to sacrifice and rejoice in it. Why? Because our goal is to present everyone, everyone. All people mature in Christ. That's our goal. Now, just because I'm up here on stage as a pastor doesn't mean I'm great at this either, okay? Doesn't mean I'm batting a thousand with this. I think as we open the Bible, as we submit ourselves to it, it moves all of us to a place of confession, of the places we fall short of that, and repentance. But here's the reality. We, if we're followers of Jesus, we have a life that is supposed to go and find people. In fact, we have a Savior 
that when he was asked what, his, what he was doing here, he said, I'm here to seek and save that which was lost. And if you have been found, if you've been found, do you want to know what makes you go and find other people? Being presented mature in Christ. So if you're being made mature in Christ, where you're convinced of your identity and you're committed to obedience, you know what you're going to do from that convincing and from that commitment? You're going to go find people. Not because you're a savior, but because it's the savior, Jesus, him you proclaim. Like what Paul's saying in verse 28, you're carrying that with you. I was at a conference this week, virtually. I actually didn't leave the house. It was kind of great. Um, it's a conference that I've attended the last couple of years. It's, it's in Nashville, Tennessee, traditionally, but, but this year with the pandemic, they offered a virtual attendance. And I uh, got to be in a part of a breakout session um, with a Q&A, a Zoom Q&A. I felt like I had more FaceTime actually in the virtual conference than I did when I actually attended the conference in years past. But I was with a doctor, um, a man named Kurt Thompson. He's a, he's, a psychi- he's a psychiatrist and a neurobiologist. So, you know, really shabby resume. Um, he, he specifically uh, deals with the concept of shame and how that we can help with the, with the gospel. We can help tell a truer story of ourselves. That's kind of his big pitch. We want to we help you tell your story more truly is what he always says. Um, and he was specifically asked the question, I'm going to give a little curveball here to our text, specifically asked the question about how this pandemic and how isolation has increased or caused anxiety. And he was quick to say specifically about anxiety that the pandemic didn't cause any anxiety. The pandemic revealed a lot of anxiety that we have. Pandemic didn't cause, it revealed. Now, anxiety is a buzzword. It's a word that we've all heard and dealt with and, and some of us might suffer with or, or, or experience differently than others. But I want to be clear here that anxiety is not a problem that you have. Anxiety is a human emotion that displays your need for something. That's what it is. Show me in scripture where Jesus condemns somebody that's worrying. He doesn't condemn them. He says, take your worry and give it to me. He doesn't say, shame on you for being a worrier or shame on you for being anxious. He says, that place in you that is anxious, I can meet that need. That place in you that has doubts, I can be your certainty. That place in you that has fears, I can be your hope and your promise. In fact, when we read on into, into Peter's letters later in the, in the Bible, it says that if you're anxious to cast your anxieties or your cares on him because he cares for you. And so when we talk about anxiety, it's something we all experience. It's something our world experiences. Some people in our world are anxious about where their next meals are coming from or where their shelter is. Some people in our world are anxious about their value. Some people in the world are anxious about their opportunities or, or they're anxious about justice or, or injustice. They're anxious about a lot of things. They're anxious about their life, their purpose, their meaning, their prosperity. They're anxious about tons of stuff. We live in a world full of anxiety, but all of it exists because it points to our need for someone to meet it. And here's something he said that stuck out. He said, anxiety is most about my felt sense that I'm actually going to end up alone in the universe. He said, if you were to thread out every anxious thought you've had, eventually it ends up with your isolation, which is why the pandemic revealed so much of it. Now you might think for you college students in the room, oh my gosh, I'm anxious that I'm, no, Andrew, I'm not anxious about I'm going to be alone in the universe. I'm anxious that I'm going to fail a test. You might be saying that in your head right now. Well, here's what Dr. Thompson would say to you. You're anxious that you might fail a test because if you fail a test, your parents might not pay for college anymore. If your parents don't pay for college anymore, you might not have enough grades to stay in it. If you can't stay in it, you might not meet the significant other that you're going to marry. If you don't meet the significant other that you're going to marry, you don't finish school and your parents aren't providing for you, then you might not have a job and you might end up under an underpass somewhere alone in the universe because you're anxious. That's where our anxiety leads. And every single one of us have had those moments 
where we're standing somewhere and anxious thoughts flood our mind. And the next thing you know, we're living in some alternate reality that doesn't make any logical sense because that's where our anxiety takes us. So his point is this. Anxieties are a human emotion that are most about my felt sense that I'm going to be alone. And here's why I'm going this route with this text. Because the gospel of Jesus answers that anxiety so profoundly. The incarnation of Christ is the promise that he will not leave you alone. He sees you and he comes and finds you because he came to save and seek that which was lost. He didn't come to improve your self-worth. He came to save your life. And when we look at the incarnation of Jesus, we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, and we look at the resurrection of Jesus, we have the proclamation that God was not willing to leave us all alone. And so we can do what that verse says, cast our anxiety on him, because we know we're convinced in his body that he cares for us. So if Jesus came to find you and you're a found person, then you have that testimony that he didn't leave you in the world. And if he came to find you and you're growing in your maturity, then what he would desire from you, an obedient step from you, would be that we join him in going to find more people. If we as the church really want to live out Colossians 1, 24 through 29, then we're going to have to be okay with sacrificing and suffering and laboring and working and our efforts never being acknowledged or commended, but revival taking place at its expense. We're going to have to be okay with that. We're going to have to be okay with people not patting us on the head and telling us that we're doing a job, but our reward being in heaven because this gospel of Jesus says that we were came and found so that we go find other people. Pam said this Tuesday, sitting down here at the altar, praying, laying at the altar. She said, I want to do a work at the altar. I want to do a work at the altar. And I listened to that and prayed that with her and prayed that with our group that was here. But as I thought about it and meditated on it throughout the week, I thought for myself, altars aren't clean places. They're messy. An Old Testament offering would have been covered in blood. It would have had the sound of dying animals on it literally all the time. I don't know if you've got to experience this before. It would have been brutal and terrifying and, you know, gross and dirty and messy, but it's where sacrifice happened. And so if we want to see a work happen from Commonwealth City Church, we're going to have to do some work at an altar. But it's not going to be by sacrificing Jesus here anymore. It's going to be by confessing and repenting here and saying, God, I, I've, I've overlooked the people right in front of me. I've overlooked other people groups. I've overlooked students on this campus. I've overlooked the hard places in our city. I've overlooked this thing. I need to confess that I have not been the kind of proclaimer or the kind of minister that you called me to be. That's an okay confession. He doesn't condemn you for it. He invites you to start. He invites you to walk a different way. He invites you to be convinced that he didn't come after you because of your efforts and your accomplishments. He came after you because you were lost and you were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he found you not to improve you, but to save you. And he knew what it was going to cost him. And he knew what it was going to require for him to save you. And he did it. And he did it all. He finished it. He's like, I'll take you exactly at that confession. Why don't you follow me in obedience? So the lesson I learned from Dr. Thompson this week combined with Kurt's like home run of a line a few weeks ago, I need the Holy Spirit, Jesus, I need you to do a work in my heart that makes it impossible for me to keep the gospel to myself. I need to help join you in finding people because Jesus, you found me. So I'm going to leave you with these few questions today. Are you convinced that he came to find you? Are you convinced of it? 
Are you convinced? You're talking about spiritual maturity. Are you convinced that he came to find you? He moved heaven and earth to find you, to see you, to see you in your shame, to see you in your sin, to see you in your heartache. He came to find you. Are you convinced that he did that to give you a new identity? And are you committed to obedience? Now, when we say obedience, we might get overwhelmed by all the things we feel like we're supposed to do. But let me just break it down for you. Do you want to know what obedience step I think the Lord is most concerned about with you taking right now? Not the one a thousand steps down the road, the next one. Some of you guys need to step towards some things. Some of you need to step away from some things. You're playing. Stop. Stop playing. Stop playing church. Stop playing Jesus. And step towards obedience in Christ. And you need to step even if it's scary. And you need to step even if it's hard. And you need to step even if it requires something from you. And I don't know what's going to be the step after that. You'll have to figure that one out with him. He's going to tell you. He's going to highlight it. It's going to be like the little arrows arrows in Mario Kart. Okay, like you're going to figure it out. He's not going to let you slip on a banana. All right? Next obedient step. For some of you, that'll be towards some things. For some of you, that'll be away from some things. But for none of you, will it be not moving anywhere? For none of you. Is obedience mean standing still? Even be still and know that I am God is an active verb, okay? It's not standing still. There's no neutral when it comes to following Jesus. And then lastly, maybe you need to do some work at this altar. Maybe you need to confess. I can confess. When it comes to laboring with all the power that works within me, as he says, with all the energy that he powerfully works in me, I only labor with some of it. I only tap into a small amount of what Jesus has put in my life. I can confess that. And I can pledge a commitment to taking obedient steps, which is the exact same things I'm asking you to do. Join me as we join Jesus in confessing and repenting and walking towards the obedience that he has for us. And as we come to this time of conclusion, where we come to our communion moment every week, um, we're kind of, our theme of the day is we're, we're doing away with routine and ritual. We don't come to this because it's the thing you're supposed to do in the last 10 minutes of our time together. We come to this table because I know it looks like packaged grape juice and a terribly um, appetizing wafer. I get it. But like, that's him we proclaim. That's him we proclaim. His body, his blood broken and shed for you. So when you take, take, eat, and remember. And when you drink, take, drink, and remember. But when you finish that little cup, you're not called to just throw it away and do it again next week. You're invited to participate with being people that are convinced of their transformation and committed to taking steps of obedience to follow Jesus so that everyone may be taught, everyone may be encouraged, and everyone may be presented mature in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you that when it comes to our life, when it comes to the places that we had such great distress and need. In fact, the Bible would actually say in places that we were just outright dead, that you found us. You saw us in our condition. You came and you found us. And Jesus, we know that the testimony of your scriptures is that you don't want the found people to be just a select elite few. You want the found people to be everyone, that none should come to repentance, or none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So Jesus... Would you commission us and lead us and call us and form us and compel us to be people that care just as much about everyone as you do? May we be people that go not just to the easy places, but the messy ones. 
Not just to the comfortable places, but the uncomfortable ones. Not just to the close places, but to the far ones. Not in order to achieve more or be more productive, but because we've been found, we join you in finding others. Lord, I pray that you make us that. I pray that this altar be a place of confession and repentance. That we say, Lord, stop using some of us. Start using some of the energy you work within me. And start using all of it for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.